Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here. Uh, thanks all for being here. I also want to give a shout out to our conference department. Uh, they do terrific work around here behind the scenes to make sure all these events come off smoothly, and uh, I really do appreciate all their hard work. Also, welcome to those of you watching uh, on the internet at Cato.org. <clears throat> for centuries, political entities from the clan and the tribe to the nation state grew richer by conquering foreign peoples and taking their stuff. In more recent times, uh, we figured out other ways to achieve prosperity. Uh, good old-fashioned, unabashed imperialism finds few adherents today, and I think that's all to the good. Uh, we can point to a number of different factors, evolving norms that favor self-determination for peoples and respect for human rights. That's a relatively new phenomenon. Equally important, though, I think, uh, are the rising costs and declining gains of military intervention foreign wars. In particular, the wider availability of destructive technologies has helped to narrow the gap between the strong and the weak, and thus change the cost-benefit equation for those contemplating the use of force. The proliferation and, crucially, convergence of new technologies have steadily pushed the means of destruction down the continuum from large states to small states to groups and now even down to individuals. Uh, in this new Cato paper, which is available outside if you haven't picked up a copy, technologies converge and power diffuses the evolution of small, smart, and cheap weapons by the National Defense University's TX Hamas. Uh, TX observes that, quote, dramatic improvements in robotics, artificial intelligence, materials, additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, and nanoenergetics are dramatically changing the character of conflict in all domains. He anticipates that this technological evolution will change the way that the US military fights its wars. Quote, the proliferation of these technologies, he writes, will greatly complicate US responses to various crises and will reduce our ability to influence events with military force. He takes particular note of four factors, the loss of immunity to attack, the tactical dominance of defense, the return of mass, and a requirement to mobilize that he predicts will have direct strategic impact on the United States. The ability of others to raise the costs of US actions and even retaliate directly against the US homeland might cause us to think more carefully about which wars we choose to fight in the first place. I've followed T.X. Hamas's work for many years, and I was thrilled when he offered to write a paper on this important topic. I'm honored to welcome him here to Cato to talk about his paper and to answer questions. Let me first uh, tell you a little bit more about him. T.X. Hamas is Distinguished Research Fellow at the U.S. National Defense University. His areas of expertise include future conflict, military strategy, and insurgency. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science from the Naval Academy in 1975 and holds a Master's in Historical Research and a Doctorate in Modern History from Oxford. He's also a distinguished graduate of the Canadian National Defense College. His publications include The Sling and the Stone on War in the 21st Century and Forgotten Warriors, the First Provisional Marine Brigade, the Corps Ethos, and the Korean War. 
He's also published 15 book chapters and over 120 articles. His publications have been used widely in staff and defense college curriculum, and he also lectures uh, here around, around the United States and abroad. Prior to his retirement from active duty in 2005, Dr. Hammes served for 30 years in the United States Marine Corps to include command of an intelligence battalion, an infantry, infantry battalion, and the Chemical Biological Incident Response Force, participated in military operations in Somalia and Iraq, and trained insurgents in various locations. With that, uh, join me in welcoming T.X. Hammes. Thank you. Um, for the uh, young strategists here, gives you something to aspire to. For those of you who are working in the field, I hope you've achieved uh, Wally's nirvana. <laughs> Oops. Hmm. Okay, there we go. I'd like to thank the Cato Institution and Chris in particular for the invitation to speak here. I think we've got an interesting topic with some interesting panelists. If you haven't read uh, Dr. Hendrick's paper on uh, the carrier air wing, you should. Uh, Jerry really hit a critical subject and does it in wonderful detail. Andrew does some great work on bombers. If you uh, agree we need a bomber, he does as good a job as you, as you can <laughs> for arguing an extraordinarily weak case, but he does a nice <laughs> job of it. Okay. Thank you, I think. <laughs> so this is essentially what we're going to look at. I think that this convergence of technology is diffusing power in ways that change our relationship and what we can do in the world. I have to give a disclaimer. These are my personal views, uh, obviously, particularly in the bomber piece. The Pentagon doesn't agree with me, Department of Defense, nor the National Defense University. So I'm going to take a quick run at reviewing some of the technologies that I think are going to be important. I'll speculate on capabilities they're going to provide and then some implications for future conflict and us. So today, everybody's painfully familiar with the extremely rapid technological change. I'm going to look at some specific areas. Additive manufacturing, 3D printing. I'm not going to cover all of advanced manufacturing, which is a whole other interesting field. I'm going to look at nanoenergetics, uh, some space and space-like capabilities and why they make an advantage to small states. Artificial intelligence and drones. A couple of subjects which I'm not really going to get into but are going to be important are hypervelocity and then perhaps most important are cyber and EW. If you dominate in those domains, you can really create problems in all others. The question is, is this unprecedented, this kind of technological change? And the answer is absolutely not. When you look at the period between World War I and World War II, we're seeing changes in a whole bunch of different technologies. Um, metallurgy, explosives, engines, maritime engines, radar, radio, all of these things are happening very quickly. Now, what's interesting is if you look at what the services did. After 1918, the United States Navy will buy or contract for 18 battleships by 1939, but only four carriers built from the ground up. There are other carriers, but only four purpose-built. Now, this is interesting, and it makes sense because in, 19, in World War I, the battleship was the dominant element. But by the time you get to 39, airplanes are the dominant element. So what actually saves our butts in 1941-42 in, uh, is first the Japanese sink our battleships so we get over that idea. And second, civilian industry had been making fighter airplane, fighter type airplane for races, for civilian development. So when we turn and we realize about 1938-39 we, we really need this in big way, there were industries prepared to do that for us. So again, the government went the wrong way but industry was there to recover for us. Now, Starting with 3D capability, the key thing is capability plus volume. When I started looking at this three years ago, you know, it's a little plastic do wickets. Who cares? 
But in the last three to four years, this is the culmination of 20 years of development, we are now, and this was three months ago, printing 113 different materials. It's much higher today because every day we're learning to print new things. And what's really remarkable is while this was used as a prototyping device and a one-off device, a guy, uh, Dr. Joe Simone, D. Simone, who's got a lot of patents, figured out a way to print 100 times faster and his goal is 1,000 times faster. So you're really gonna have the ability to produce large numbers. Second thing, and this is gonna be kinda interesting how it ties together in the end, is nanoenergetics. This is the Navy's polite term for explosives. The Navy's too politically correct, I guess, to worry about blowing people up, so we have energetics. The key thing is that this went underground in about 2002. 2002 is the last open source reference. At that time, we could produce twice the explosive power of TNT, which means a 500-pound bomb is now the equivalent of a 1,000-pound bomb. Obviously, some tremendous benefits. I would be remarkably surprised if we haven't had significant progress, and if you have access to classified information, you can find out what it is. But suffice it to say, this stuff is going to leak into the civilian world simply because it's a great technology. It's much better to use less explosives when you're bringing down a building or mining than it is to carry more in. Space and space-like capabilities. What's interesting here, in the upper right on your side, that's a CubeSat. That's all the bigger they are. It started out as a high school science project, then these guys went to college. Now they started a company called Skybox Imaging. Skybox Imaging's plan was to image the entire Earth with half-meter resolution every six hours by putting about 200 of these in orbit. Well, I wasn't too worried, because first, could they do it? And second, if they could make that many images, could they find them? Well, Google bought them. And if somebody can find information, it's Google. <laughs> so we are going to have that capability. Now, what makes this particularly interesting is they were made that size because that was what ballast-sized cubes were in main satellite shots. Now you actually get, have to get paid to put these on a satellite. So the response is this guy in the lower right is a New Zealander who's developed that rocket as a commercial rocket, specifically to put up CubeSats. He hasn't launched his first rocket yet. I think he's planning for late summer. But the fact is the next four launches have already been subscribed. Because people think with these CubeSats, they're already doing multispectral imagery from space in less than half meter resolution. And it's a commercial enterprise. Over here is, of course, famous Google Loon is going to bring uh, connectivity to the entire planet uh, fairly cheaply. Well, if you can put balloons up there to give you permanent Wi-Fi, you can also put them up to do permanent surveillance. And then, of course, on the upper side is England Zephyr which is a solar-powered plane that stays up weeks at a time and essentially provides you near-satellite capability from about 80,000 feet. Next are drones. Now, I put up this one on the upper left because it's got a fair-sized camera on it. You don't need a quadcopter to get something that big up. You can actually do it with a, or an octocopter, you can do it with a quad. What's interesting, if I can point and shoot a camera, I can point and shoot an explosively formed projectile. These are easy to weaponize. Now, down there is a very expensive British version, 10 grand for that, but it gives you an idea of how size is going down. We've actually got some much smaller, the size of an insect. These guys are up here because they're biology students. They've taken no engineering courses, but they had to survey a rainforest, so they decided they needed an Air Force, so they built one. And they have an autonomous Air Force that every day flies their rainforest for them with no technical training. The upper corner, it's just interesting there, that was printed, the body of that drone was printed at a UK university, total cost, nine bucks. 
So this is where it's going. Now, one of the interesting things is we think about AI, and a lot of people think the Cylon-looking thing that everybody in the Air Force except the pilots really drool about. Uh, but what's really happening is in the lower right-hand side, you see a guy with a little drone? That's the autonomous drone that goes out and takes multispectral pictures of every single grapevine in his vineyard and gives him information when it gets back. He throws it up in the morning, it flies for a couple hours, it lands, he comes back, hooks up to his computer, and it tells him exactly what his plants need. The other side is a crop dusting autonomous helicopter in Japan. If you've been to Japan, you know how complex the agricultural setup is because the land is so tight. This thing flies its own patterns and does it. So what we think of with AI is that thing in the upper corner. What's really happening is down here. But what's interesting is Aerovel is now selling a autonomous drone, vertical takeoff, will uh, land on a ship or take off from a ship that has a 3,500 kilometer range. Um, payload of these things go from ounces to hundreds of pounds. The cost from 300 bucks for a cheap one to millions if you really go high end or you get involved with the US government buying it. Uh, a lot of these are DIY projects. Uh, there are uh, racing clubs, drone racing clubs, and there are drone intelligence clubs. People have competitions. They've developed software so you can follow your friends. But uh, uh, Bebop, which makes Parrot, actually for $4.90, you can add a software patch that if I point it at you, say, press the button, say, that's the guy, it will now follow you. Again, add an explosively formed projectile, and I have an entirely different system. Um, Amazon has a project to deliver 20 pounds, 100 miles, but what's really interesting is non-GPS. It's inertial nav plus image nav, so you can't jam it. And then you've got uh, the Swiss post office is already trying experimental delivery. Okay, so I want to show you what this means in Convergent. Could you run the first clip? This is a Razor 3 3D printed fully autonomous UAV. It's built uh, from completely off-the-shelf hardware, so the brains of the unit is a cell phone, two batteries, and an electric ducted fan. Our first launch was a car launch. We uh, lifted off out of the sunroof of my car at about 25 miles an hour. The second launch, we moved to a bungee cord and uh, launched it off the ground, and we've just gotten to the point where we're hand-launching. It was designed to be hand-launchable. That's like been... Okay, you can see what that means in terms of availability. They are 3D printing it, which means the software is out there, which means anybody with that type of 3D printer can do it. Uh, they're using a standard Android cell phone, a standard cheap electric motor, and some batteries. Battery technology is improving. What makes this really dangerous is the explosively formed projectile. We encountered this in Iraq. It's not a new technology. We've used it, but it's the first time the bad guys were using it. Of course, one of the problems is this cone, well, my pointer's not working. This copper cone is hard to make. It requires really fine machining, except now it can be 3D printed. And a 3D metal printer that will do that is $4,000. So I've solved how to make them. I can now, there's a great YouTube video that shows you how to build them, shows you how to build a small one like this. Believe it or not, that will punch through a half inch of armor at a range of uh, 10 feet. If you go up to a two pounds, you can punch from 25 feet, you can punch through an inch of armor. So you have systems that are tank killers.
There's certainly fuel truck killers. There's certainly command and control vehicle killers. There are all those things that they can do. Okay, now let's try the second video. For the last 15 years, anybody who's been in Iraq or Afghanistan has had the experience of looking out of the vehicle at piles of trash as you hunt IEDs and, and pray you get them before they get you. Okay, that's... We need the next video. This one, uh, quadcopter off-road. Oh, can I control it from down here? Or? Any luck with it? Here comes it. Trust me, it's worth it. It's worth the wait. <laughs> we'll just go ahead and play it. We don't need to. Now, there's a couple times, too, when you were like, I, you're just a good pilot, but it freaked me out because you were like standing way over there. Over by that turn over there, and I'm like, dude, he's so far away. I don't even know which way it's going. Do you ever slip into the man or altitude mode? Yeah. I haven't today, but yeah, like a lot of one, a lot of them when I'm uh, really pushing the distance and I lose it. Yeah, then all that uh, altitude. That's one way to kill it. Okay, so that's going to be part of your problem. That guy hunt there. Got it. Okay. Um, now, just in case you think this is only a land guy problem or an airplane problem, because obviously, if I can hunt your vehicle, I can hunt your airplane. Back in the 80s, when insurgents were good guys, I was working with the Afghans. We worked for about two years to develop a 36-kilometer rocket and a manned portable rocket launcher to try to close down Bagram Airfield. It worked really well, except um, they felt it would insult Allah if they actually did gunnery calculations, so we never knew where the hell the rockets were going. We did kill two IL-76s. Today, I wouldn't need to worry about that. I would get some of these cheap drones, autonomous programmable. I'd go to Google Earth. I would look down and see that the nearest Afghan village to the place we park our C-17s is a distance of under 2,000 meters, so easily within range of a drone. I would send an autonomous drone out there, and even if all I do is drop a bag of gasoline, I guarantee the chief of staff of the Air Force will know tomorrow morning, and we'll probably shut down Bagram for an airfield, for good reason. You can't afford resources like that to get blown up. Just so you don't think I'm picking on air and ground, this is the Slocum Glider. It spends five years at sea. It was developed, again, commercially. Um, it uses thermocline for energy, so it harvests energy by moving through the thermocline. Surfaces, transmits its data back through satellite, picks up new information, and proceeds with its next mission. When I saw this, I saw a self-deploying mine. Since this thing can go extraordinary distances and literally is launched off a boat like that, throw it over the side and it goes, you could mine U.S. harbors. And we are really crappy at minesweeping. The U.S. Navy is spending next to nothing on minesweeping. So what does this mean? Well, it means that we've got the military's attention. Do you want to try this or? Okay. There's a big exercise every year at Black Dart where drones may be so small as to be virtually undetectable. 
As the cost and size of drones approaches zero, it ultimately may mean everyone gets cheap, practically invisible air power. So it's no wonder that the military is here at Black Tart trying to get a head start on figuring out what to do about drones. And the rapid evolution of drones makes it harder to predict their future capabilities, which makes it even more difficult to predict how to stop them. The huge range of tactics and technologies being tested at Black Dart show that even the largest and most advanced military in the world is gonna have to scramble if it wants to get ahead of the curve on drones and stay there. Okay, so that's what's coming down the pike at us. The U.S. military is aware of it. Unfortunately, that film's almost two years old, so it is horrifically out of date as far as drone capabilities go. When you think of drone swarm, we think swarms were talking 10 or 12. This is what a drone swarm is going to look like. Remember that 100 times faster printer. So if I can print one drone a day with a printer, I can now print 100 drones a day. UPS has a plant in Louisville of 100 printers. So they would be able to print you 10,000 drones a day. So a swarm would look more like that than the 10 or 12 you're thinking about. The other problem is then how to launch them. Well, the Chinese have solved that. They've taken the um, Harpy drone that the Israelis sold them. They put it on a five-ton truck, and they can launch 19 off a five-ton truck. Well, this is a big drone, nine-foot wingspan, fixed wingspan. So off a five-ton truck, you get nine. If you take something small like the Marine Corps switchblade, you could probably put 150 in the back of a Humvee. So if you have 10, you've got a 1,500 swarm drone out of a 10-truck battery. And I think this is what we're going to see. So what does that mean? Well, um, it means that there are, first we've got the loss of immunity. Everywhere in our supply chain we can be struck, and that has political implications because if I am today ISIS, and my problem is the U.S. is flying in supplies through Kuwait, I contact the Kuwait government and say, look, we're Muslim brothers and all that, but you're killing me. So I don't want to do this, but I'm going to start taking out airliners at your airfields if you don't shut down all your airfields to U.S. traffic. What does the Kuwait government do? Well, we can say, well, we'll fly in and provide air defense. Can we defend all the airfields in the, in the Middle East? And again, if you've got a 3,400-kilometer range, that means out of Western Iraq, most of Western Europe's in range. So how do I protect the flow? And if they really want to go whole hog and really lose their mind, they could mine U.S. harbors. That usually doesn't turn out well because we don't respond well to sneak attacks on American soil. But we're fine with you blowing up embassies, so there's other options you have. And that's what we've got to think through. That also means tactically dominant defense. From, 19, from about 1863 to 1917, the defense is dominant on the tactical ground battlefield for the simple reason that it's really cheap to kill anything that moves above ground. And until we figure out that problem, we end up with trench warfare, even late in the U.S. Civil War. So is that coming? And if so, what does that imply? Since we as a nation, because we deploy overseas to do anything, we are inherently on the operational and strategic offensive, what do we do tactically? How do we make it happen? The return of mass, when we got into the high-end second uh, revolution that Bob Work talks about, the problem is that's very expensive. So fewer and fewer are more expensive and exquisite platforms. And we didn't do mass because it doesn't matter because you can only build a couple F-15s a month. Well, with this system, you can build tens of thousands a day. 
And commercial industry will also have 3D printers, so all they need is the software to start producing weapons. So mobilization becomes a real reality. Can we mobilize? We've completely done away with that capability of the Pentagon. We have no idea how to do that. We may have to do that. It'll be a different term of mobilization, but we've got to consider it. So our strategic options. In grand strategy in the United States, there's a whole discussion of everything from offshore balancing, which is essentially extreme restraint, to very aggressive uh, interventionism. Rather than just thinking of strategy, we've got to figure out what can we actually do operationally and tactically. In this new environment, how do we do it? And is it politically feasible? If we cannot protect all the bases and allies on the way in, will they let us use their bases? Or do we have to really think hard about this from the sea concept? Um, again, the protection of forward bases, but also the protection of few and exquisite. You may have the finest aircraft in the world with the F-35, if it ever works. Uh, but it doesn't matter because it's short-legged. So let's say you base 100 F-35s in Japan. I'll send 10,000 drones after you. 5,000 are really cheap and they're stupid and they fly in the ocean. I don't care. You kill 3,000 as they cross into your air defense dome. Doesn't matter. You kill 1,000 right at the perimeter of the airfield. Doesn't matter. I got 1,000 drones hunting your airplanes underground. Even if you put them underground and harden them, I can go after your radars, your hard fuel points, all those sorts of things that are vulnerable. It's a demonstrated capability that college kids are doing today, and probably the Pentagon in 10 or 15 years. Um, so we've got to really look at this and decide what it means. The potential path forward for DRD is continue the current path with few and exquisite F-35s, B-21s, Ford-class carriers, with a heavy reliance on strike. And the idea is each of these are exquisite systems that can strike and penetrate through. That it completely avoids the argument, has, has strike ever worked? Let's face it, we're talking about the B-1 and the Ford for exquisite. We're talking about trying to get into China. Why would we strike China? To take down their air defense. Why would we take down their air defense so we can strike China? Kind of a circular argument. What is it you're striking in China that makes China stop doing what it's doing? Where is your historical evidence you can do this? If you want to take the Bosnia campaign and say, look, what we did to the Serbs, then I would say you're the kind of person that would uh, run the 100-yard dash in the Special Olympics and be proud of the gold medal just makes no sense. You took on a crippled nation and you beat them. I'm really impressed. Um, finally, the key historically has been, first, a new technology starts out as kind of an interesting toy, the airplanes. Then you find out, hey, it can supplement the existing thing. The battleship shoots over the horizon. I can't see. I don't have radar yet. The airplane lets me do it. Then it becomes a partner where some things the airplane does, other things the battleship does. Then it replaces the battleship. And finally, it makes a battleship irrelevant. I think we're past the toy phase. We're moving into the supplement phase and moving into the partner phase. We've got to figure that out. We have these legacy systems we've paid for. Question is, do we buy any more? But clearly, we have to figure out, how do we make the legacy systems work with these new systems uh, to make it work? And I'm happy to continue this conversation on email. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Oh, you're good. You're good. Thank you, TX. Uh, it's now my pleasure to introduce our two distinguished commentators. I'll introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. Uh, Andrew Philip Hunter is a senior fellow in the International Security Program and director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He focuses on issues affecting the industrial base, uh, including emerging technologies, acquisition policy, and industrial policy. From 2011 to November 2014, Mr. Hunter served as a senior executive in the Department of Defense. From 2011 to 2012, he served as Chief of Staff, 
to Ashton Carter and Frank Kendall while each was serving as Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Uh, our second speaker today is Jerry Hendricks. Jerry is Senior Fellow and Director of the Defense Strategies and Assessments Program at the Center for New American Security. He's a retired captain in the U.S. Navy. His staff assignments included uh, tours with the Chief of Naval Operations, where his efforts centered on homeland defense, naval aviation, and Navy missile defense. And from 2011 to 2012, Jerry served as the director and designated federal officer of the Secretary of Navy's advisory panel. Uh, he uh, was a Navy fellow at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard. Uh, he was awarded a bachelor's degree in political science from Purdue, master's degree from the Naval Postgraduate School and Harvard, uh, and he received his doctorate from King's College in London. Uh, with that, uh, Andrew, take it away. You can go ahead and speak from the podium, please. Thank you. We'll do the, we'll the Q&A from the table. Great. Excellent. Great. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Chris, and, and TX. This is a great paper. Uh, really fascinating. Uh, you've captured, in I think, a very compelling and interesting way a lot of really important uh, things that are happening and, and advances. Uh, there's a lot I agree with. There's some things I don't agree with, as you've already noted. So uh, what I'll try and do is kind of divide my talk up into where I think you've hit it just right. Uh, and you've uh, identified things that are really important. And then I'll try and maybe offer some additional perspective uh, on, some, on some other areas. Um, and let me just start by saying one of the things that's impressive about your paper is it does that most difficult of things. It's looking into the future and trying to, to project where things are likely to go. Uh, and as Yogi Berra said, uh, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. Um, you know, what I kind of chuckle about sometimes is predicting things that happened in the past is a little harder than you might think, too, uh, because we think we know what happened in the past, but then when you go to try and demonstrate it with data and prove that what we think happened happened, it can, it can get pretty tricky. Um, but predictions are especially difficult about the future, uh, and that's why I am usually loath to try to do that. So again, I, I uh, am in, your, uh, in awe of you for taking that on. Um, but speaking of a little bit about predicting things that have happened in the past, uh, one of the things that I think TX has got exactly right here is that the, the, what's happening in the world of technology is fundamentally changing uh, the security environment for the world. Uh, and not least within that, the U.S. Department of Defense, which is of interest to me both because I study it in my current job and because I've, I've served within it in the past uh, in a civilian capacity. Uh, and others, obviously, have ser served in a military capacity. Uh, and, and what's happening is that uh, the nature of the way that technology is, uh, is driving the world is changing. Uh, in, in the past, the not-so-distant past, depending on your perspective, uh, the 1960s is sort of the exemplar, uh, most of the research and development happening across the entire planet was happening using funding coming from the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, it was the overwhelming sponsor of research. Uh, and this created a world in which uh, the Department of Defense felt this sense of ownership control of the world of technology uh, because, literally, they owned it in many cases. Uh, and that's where the money was coming from. Uh, and, and a lot of our uh, systems that have developed that remain in place today were formulated in this period. Things like export controls, the U.S. defense acquisition system largely formulated in the 50s and 60s. Uh, these things are kind of born in an environment where the expectation was that technology was something that was largely within the purview and control of the Department of Defense. 
Uh, and that's a reality that as TX has demonstrated with, with, uh, with his words and with some of the videos that he's shown, that is, that is no longer reality. It is not the case today. Um, uh, and let me talk a little bit about the why. So I think the why is basically the money. Follow the money. Uh, the money is, is now uh, has entirely shifted. So in the 1960s, uh, two-thirds of all research and development happening globally was sponsored by the Department of Defense. Uh, today, that percentage would probably be south of 5%. Uh, we don't have exact numbers. It's, this is a, something that's hard to measure, but you can kind of estimate uh, where it is. What we do know is that uh, at least two-thirds of all research and development happening globally is commercial development. Uh, it's not sponsored by any government. It's, it is not to say it is completely outside the control of any government, but it's not government-sponsored. It is designed to address commercial needs. Uh, and about one-third, then, is government-driven, and that's across a range of governments. Uh, and there are other governments that have increased their investment. China, most notably, has dramatically increased its investment uh, in research and development. The Russians also, although to a lesser extent. Uh, and what's also interesting about this is it's not, um, may not surprise you coming from me, it's not a screed against the Department of Defense. Because it's not that the Department of Defense has forsaken research and development. It's just that everyone else's growth has been so spectacular, phenomenal, and huge. Uh, as a percentage, uh, in real terms, the DOD investment in R&D today is actually higher than it was back in the 60s. But everyone else has just grown much more. So I like to think of this as a good thing, by and large. It means the world is wealthier, that it can afford to do these things. Uh, and so that's largely a good thing. But all good things have their, their dark side. as. Uh, as we're sort of exploring today. Uh, so that, that uh, locus of innovation has moved away from the Department of Defense, if you follow the money, it's my argument. Uh, it's moved away from the Department of Defense. It has moved to the commercial area. And uh, much of it is international in character. But whether it originates in the United States or not, as TX has pointed out, if it's commercial, it is available globally. Uh, it is available to our adversaries uh, at least as or almost as easily as it would be to us. So that is uh, a point of complete agreement. And I think you've, you've really hit the nail on the head. Um, I think you also kind of highlight that the pace of innovation has really changed. Uh, you know, the, when new technologies are introduced, how long does it take them to become something that is routinely used by the average person? Uh, you know, when the television was, is, was introduced, it was some 30 to 40 years before every person had a television in their house. Uh, you know, when, uh, when the iPhone was introduced, you know, it was a handful of years before most people had one in their pocket, at least in the United States, but also in many parts of the world. So that pace of change, that pace of innovation has definitely shifted. Um, and I would say that, um, oh, and then the one last characteristic change that I think is, that TX has really highlighted that is absolutely correct is that uh, commercial technology that you think of as commercial technology has increasing relevance to military applications. Uh, what I like to do is I like to pull out my handy-dandy iPhone, uh, which I think I shut off at Chris's direction, but, uh, and, and talk about, you know, there was a time where you would think uh, targeting was a, was a particularly unique kind of a thing to do. And it is in some sense, because, you know, why are you targeting? You know, but all the capabilities that you might used to have spent millions of dollars for separate systems to do accurate military targeting, the precision you know, revolution of the 80s and 90s, you know, they're all in here. You know, I can image something, I can geolocate it, I can transmit that data back over a network to someone somewhere else and say, this is exactly the thing uh, that needs to, to be blown up. 
And if there's one thing that I think is true about, uh, about our military, it's that when you want something to be blown up and you know where it is, we're very good at doing that. Uh, blowing things up is, is one of our strong points uh, and likely to continue to be. So the, the, the combination of these trends really does create, I think, a paradigm change. And the department uh, has to deal with it. And um, for better or for worse, uh, depending on your perspective, uh, they are trying to deal with it. And uh, that's where I think the, uh, the third offset strategy that I know Jerry has written about, a lot of folks have written about, uh, you know, it is clearly in designed and intended to respond to the fact that the technological advantage the U.S. has joined is narrowing. And there's a variety of reasons why that advantage is narrowing them, but a lot of those reasons are the ones that TX has identified. Um, now, let me start to talk about where I see things maybe slightly differently, and, and then we can discuss that later. So what strikes me about, about your pitch, TX, is that um, I see two things that are embedded in it. One is a technology revolution. The other is a manufacturing revolution. Uh, so these questions about numbers, about mass, uh, about how easy it is for an adversary to leverage all of these technologies perhaps faster than we might be able to, or at least at pace, is kind of, uh, to me, it's, it's tied up in this idea that things are going to be really cheap to produce. And that's really a manufacturing revolution, I think, more than it is a technology revolution. And you can argue maybe that's a, a, a difference without a distinction. Uh, but I think there is a distinction there. Um, uh, if the real change is that things are going to be so much cheaper in 10 years from now, uh, than they are today, uh, that is one thing to deal with. If, if the real change is that technology is advancing far more rapidly, now these can both be true. They can both be happening simultaneously, so I'm not suggesting they're in tension with one another. Um, and if they're both true, then I think a lot of the things that you're talking about um, uh, could potentially come to pass. Uh, but I'm less maybe convinced about the manufacturing revolution. I'm less convinced that in 10 years' time, you know, we'll be able to 3D print the B-21 bomber. Uh, if we do, I'm still a fan of buying it, by the way. Uh, it's just going to be a lot cheaper. And, and, oh, by the way, we really should make sure that the contract is cost type and not fixed price because, boy, would that be a boondoggle for defense industry. If they're going to be able to make everything so much cheaper 10 years than, from, than they are today, they're going to make some pretty big profits on all these weapon systems um, if we just uh, make them fixed price. But that's a little inside joke. Um, so... <laughs> so uh, so I, I think I'm not as convinced that it's going to be really cheap to produce large volumes of sophisticated technological items uh, in the near future uh, or even in the, in the midterm future. I, I, you know, as a citizen of the world, I, I kind of hope it's the case, uh, although there's going to be a lot of consequences to that if it happens. Um, uh, so that, I think that's an important key point that I'm not quite as convinced on. Uh, second thing that I, I want to uh, kind of poke at a little bit, uh, I think you're, you're very uh, correct when you talk about uh, the vulnerabilities that, uh, that are out there. So uh, I can summarize that very briefly by saying the U.S. homeland is vulnerable. And I think this is something that we know is true, and you're, you're very right about that. You've brought it down concretely to some of the sub-elements, um, but it's, it's very true. Uh, does that mean, then, that we should forsake uh, what I think in your paper you call exquisite systems, you know, the, uh, the more expensive ones? And this is where I think there's another uh, issue that I want to bring out, to, at least for discussion, which is the question about uh, adaptability. Um, if, it, if it's the technology revolution that I focus on, where my mind goes with, with what that means is that 
uh, I need to have a capability to change what it is that, uh, that I'm employing on a regular basis, far faster than we do today. You can argue about what the right time frame is. I tend to talk about we need to be able to do it in less than two years. I use that time frame because our system is terrible at doing things in less than two years. It's arguably better when you get out beyond two years at making change. It's really bad at making change in less than two years. And so my focus tends to be on how do we change our systems, our way of thinking and our way of doing things, to be able to adapt in a time frame of, of less than two years. The, the real necessary time frame could be weeks and, and months, as it was essentially in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and so if, if it's about adaptation, if, uh, then it's possible, I would argue, that the, the person who can adapt fastest will win. And that's different from saying everything goes to mass and defense has the advantage. Uh, I think it's possible that this technological revolution doesn't change and give defense the complete advantage, but it may give the complete advantage to the person who adapts the fastest and can constantly stay out ahead with the ability to detect smaller and smaller drones and shoot them, to, shoot them down. Uh, or otherwise, just keep them out of an area that you want to deny to them uh, through other means. It doesn't always have to be kinetic. So uh, I think that's, that's a question to explore. Does, adapt, does adaptability address this problem? It's been where my focus is, so I'm, I'm admittedly biased. Uh, I can't say that we can prove that that will be the case. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's something that needs to be considered and looked at. Um, and then I'm getting short on, on my time. I guess I want to uh, close by not necessarily endorsing, but by introducing another element that uh, has been brought forward in the department's efforts, the third offset strategy that I referred to earlier. And uh, what they have basically focused their, uh, their attention on, as, as they've talked about it publicly, and Bob Work uh, gave a talk at the uh, Reagan National Defense Forum, that's well worth watching if you haven't seen it, about the third offset strategy. And he really focused on this issue of human-machine integration. So uh, where the department essentially has laid down its marker is to say, uh, where the true advantage lies is not necessarily in fully autonomous systems. It's in systems that are able to leverage the advantages introduced by autonomy to do many, many, many routine things um, uh, very quickly and without any attention from a human being, but then also to leverage the kinds of things that human brains are very good at doing, uh, of which there is still a, uh, a fairly large number, although the IBM crowd keeps trying to keeps trying to shrink that down with the, these computers. I guess we're in the middle of a, a competition between a computer and a human uh, in Go, and the computer won the first round. So uh, anyway, that, that, that area is shrinking, but it, it's not non-existent, and hopefully will never be completely non-existent. So I, I think that's um, that issue of, so to try and sum up, uh, are exquisite systems obsolete because of the trends that TX has identified? I'm, I'm not convinced. I don't think the case closes yet. I can't foreclose that it will ever close. Uh, but I think this issue of can these systems be made to be adaptable in a time frame that would allow them to remain ahead of people who are using purely commercial, inexpensive systems uh, as their, as their uh, form of attack. And then... Um, and then the issue of, is there truly something different about that human-machine interaction uh, that the department is currently exploring that would, uh, again, make it something where uh, the average person would not be able to achieve a capability with commercial systems that would truly compete with US military systems?
Good afternoon. The difficulty of going third is there's so much of the stuff that you actually have to start Xing out uh, as the, uh, the gentleman who precedes you uh, tends to cover some of the topics and highlights that, that you had. However, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wing it and go with uh, some of my prepared remarks and, uh, and make up others as I go along. Um, first of all, let me uh, compliment Professor Hammes on a strong contribution to the professional literature as uh, someone who teaches in part-time at Georgetown and working with master's students trying to get through their thesis right now, being understand the literature review and understanding where ideas come from and, and tracking sort of the arc of ideas over time, is that th this paper is actually a significant contribution to the literature that deals with revolution of military affairs, proliferation of technology, uh, diffusion, et cetera. And I think it's going to lodge well alongside some of the work uh, earlier by Millett and Murray on the interwar period as well as uh, my colleague at CNAS, Michael Horowitz's work on the diffusion of technology. And so it's going to lay right, right within that, and I think that a lot of people are going to come back and begin citing this. At least uh, two of my master's students are probably going to be citing it shortly uh, as, uh, as I distribute this. Second point about this is as he was up here talking, and specifically when he gets into some of these impacting uh, YouTube videos, uh, there was that point in time in, in my mind where I was sitting there thinking, stop talking. Um, you're contributing too much to the conversation, and quite frankly, you're going to give some really great ideas. But as we all learned uh, after 9-11, specifically with the 9-11 Commission, with those very powerful words about a failure of imagination, the idea of, of uh, weaponizing airliners with fuel, uh, full fuel bladders, that it's important to actually think about these things ahead of time and begin anticipating them. And in fact, to not do so is, in fact, to, to uh, be... Uh, uh, to fail in our own responsibilities. And so I thank you for the con contribution from that, that standpoint. A couple of key takeaways from the paper uh, deal with uh, his insights on the new technologies themselves that prove so potent, but rather how they are combined. Um, this is kind of interesting because it's very reminiscent of some of the things that were do done about Blitzkrieg. Uh, in World War I, we had tanks. In World War I, we had airplanes. In World War I, we had the beginning of radio, and we had telegraphy, and we had communication. And Blitzkrieg itself uh, wasn't anything new. All the elements were there, but it was how they are combined. And so one of the aspects of this paper is how these things, each one of them independent streams that are, that are in the commercial sector or in the military sector, but it's how they're going to come together in combinations. And quite frankly, that is the essence of military innovation. That is where leap aheads come. That, quite frankly, is what first offset, second offset, and, and hopefully third offset are all about. It's not necessarily the fact that I've got this new type of technology that's going to dominate the, the military spectrum. It's perhaps that there's a new technology that's gets grafted onto an older technology that's going to revolutionize because we haven't anticipated how to deal with that from a defensive uh, standpoint. I was struck by your comment earlier about the idea about armor and how much we could pierce armor. Uh, my, one of my, my last job, the, one of the great privileges of my military career was I, I got to be the director of naval history for my last two years on active duty, largely because I apparently was, was the only guy uh, standing around the E-ring with a PhD in history uh, at a time when they were looking for someone to go fill that position. But sitting out in front of the National Museum of the Navy uh, down at the Washington Navy Yard is a very large piece of, of armor, um, some of the finest steel in the world. 18 inches of armor that was made as a replacement for the battleship Yamato, largest battleship in the Pacific Theater. And after the war, we found this piece of armor. It was still sitting in Japan. It was there to be a replacement for either Yamato or Musashi if they were damaged in battle. And so we took it to the range, and we fired one of our 16-inch shells from the Iowa-class battleships. 
and the, the remainder is what's out there. And, and so what it showed was the 16-inch shell penetrated the 18 inches of armor like a hot knife going through butter. Uh, crystallized the armor. It's rather interesting. If, if you think of New Age sculpture, uh, then this would be a rather dramatic and damaging uh, version of it. But the idea of in the constant battle between the offense and the defense, the offense is one, and it's been in a driving role now for most of the, the last century. Um, and, and it's only continuing based upon some of the things that TX brings up in this. So as he does this exploration of 3D uh, printing to form drones in mass numbers, each equipped with explosives derived from nanotechnology to produce this terrifying vision. I mean, the idea of having a, a lone unit out there, be it a man or a small platoon, or for that matter, a ship uh, out there that suddenly sees this swarm coming over the right. I mean, we've seen it in movies. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, we've seen it with uh, Charlton Heston movies from the 1950s with locust swarms coming out. And you actually mentioned the Navy program on, on locusts. This is something that we see, and quite frankly, we're not sure if we're, we're ready uh, to deal with it. Uh, the also, he brought up within the paper the idea of precision strike bullets, precision strike mortar rounds, precision strike grenades that were actually able to integrate uh, this, uh, this GPS-related technology to essentially update the smallest projectile to increase its lethality and its targetability. Uh, this is a world that we have not necessarily anticipated, and we're not sure how we're going to respond to. He also does a great job in providing useful economic comparisons, and this is something that's really kind of important to me. Uh, I happen to have a privilege of spending two years of working as military assistant to Andrew Marshall. And when you do a net assessment, it, it's all about what is that economic competition, how is the economic exchange, are we in fact it's spending ourselves stupidly um, in, uh, in the pursuit of, of certain key technologies, the idea of the few and exquisite. Uh, when the other guy can essentially build a million cheaper versions. One of the things he brought out there was that for the price of one Virginia-class submarine, we could buy approximately 17,500 underwater drones. Um, these drones could be a combination of weaponized drones or sensor drones, but it could give you a much broader spread of your understanding and awareness of the undersea environment for a much cheaper price than some of the things. And so again, this idea of leaping forward with our imagination into a new realm. Uh, is something that we need to look at. Uh, you also, I think, made, you touched on the idea of satellites and, and how many drones. We often worry, uh, satellites give us so much communication, they give us awareness of what's going on on the ground right now. He, he mentioned CubeSats, but you know, the cost of uh, launching one satellite up and building that one satellite to give us long dwell persistent, to what degree could I build a constellation of, of, of drones that are operating in the near vicinity to give me both communication and awareness of that? Is that a much more cheaper and more effective way and, and quite frankly, more replaceable and survivable as well? So again, it's the questions that the paper raises uh, that uh, all the way through that I think makes it uh, most powerful. Um, one additional area that hasn't, he didn't remark on that I find very interesting because of, of the historical evolution of it deals with the aspect of fuel density. Uh, in your paper, you mentioned fuel gels. Um, the Navy went through, of course, we went very quickly from, uh, from uh, sail into steam. And in, in those early years, we used coal to drive uh, reciprocating steam engines. Uh, but around 1905 to 1915, we began a conversion to fuel oil or bunker oil uh, because bunker oil was much more dense. And in fact, we could convert the older battleships uh, their coal bunkers into fuel oil bunkers, and we could actually double the range of the battleship simply through that conversion because 
the, the, the bunker oil was a much more dense of, of fuel that, that would, and, and you could get more of it into the same amount of area. The fuel gels that he's talking about now are new chemical compositions of fuel that can actually, you can put as uh, the fuel gel into the same spot as a liquid gel, but you can almost double the range of the UAV. So when you're starting to deal with A2AD environments that are going to press your launch platforms back farther and farther from the enemy, the idea of being able to have something uh, occupy the same space as a previous fuel, but extend the range of the weapon, say a tomahawk, for instance, uh, with a much more dense fuel, uh, taking the tomahawk from 800, 900 miles to doubling that uh, through the additive of a new fuel, now suddenly you have an ability to transform. So again, these nanotechnologies through the use of these fuel gels is something that I think is going to give us more range in the long term. Um, I like the idea of uh, his application of current uh, application of current technologies to emerging challenges. Um, you know, he talked about using these Android telephones. Um, I I don't have an iPhone. I think I'm apparently the only person left that doesn't. Uh, every other member of my family does. Uh, all both daughters and I. I, I don't. Uh, I'm I was lucky to get away from a flip phone just about a year ago. Um, and texting still doesn't make sense to me. Why don't we talk? I just, I just don't understand why, why my daughters want to, me to text them. It's like, just call me because I can do this in 30 seconds. Uh, but anyways, uh, the idea of adapting Androids with all the applications that are inherent on them, which I can download off the Internet to be able to do basic things like facial recognition or target recognition. How many works have we, how many decades have we worked on TURCOM or terrain recognition software to put into some of our missiles when in fact Android is apparently getting there way ahead of us uh, and allowing these things to operate in an autonomous way without linking back through a satellite to something else. Uh, truly terrifying. Uh, and this leads me to my point about autonomy. Uh, counters so many conversations surrounding uh, independent autonomous drones in the coming challenge. TX points out that there's a combination of new technologies uh, in new ways could mean that drones are already possible and already here, uh, perhaps that, in, that we are ready for them. The fact that they could be used to return mass to the battlefield, and I do want to stop down on this. Second offset, I, I had a chance to talk with William Perry um, in his office at Stanford a couple of weeks ago, talk to him about the beginning of second offset and why. And he said that, you know, one of the things we saw was that the Soviets were catching up with us with regard to technology. Um, they were still at 1.4 million, and we had a question, now that they're catching up to us technologically, do we want to have to build up our forces so we have parity? We realized we could not afford it in the post-Vietnam era, so big, deep investment in these new second offset things. Um, so we went with the few and exquisite over the mass, but now um, that bought us about 25 years of an advantage. Third offset right now, even in some of the best case scenarios I'm looking at, third offset may buy us five years, at the most 10 years. It's going to be a continuous R&D effort to be able to stay out and pace ahead of competitors because, let's face it, when your competitor is fielding its joint strike fighter simultaneous with you because your, essentially your commercial industry is, is, is leaking, uh, information and so stealth technology, engine technology, targeting technology is out there, uh, then you're going to have to really double down and work forward on that. Um, and so I think that there's a question about coming back to the, to the many uh, and, the, and, and the cheap over the few and the exquisite going forward. And, and I think we have to understand that probably some sort of a mix, a high-low mix, buying a few high-end, exquisite technologies that work well with a lot of smaller, cheaper, more numerous, massive 
levels of technologies might be the right uh, thing going forward for us. Um, and, so, and so I'll just close uh, with the idea, uh, I want to come back to the idea about how fast technology is going. In 1969, you know, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon in the Apollo 11 uh, lunar module. The command module's navigation computer had 64 kilobits of information uh, that it could hold, and it held 1,100 command lines on everything that was needed to launch from the Earth and go to the moon and return to Earth and do Earth orbit uh, rendezvous, lunar orbit rendezvous, very complex astrophysical maneuvers. But we were able to write that in very exquisite code because we didn't have a lot of space and we were really good at it. Now we have these Android apps, and literally we can write junk because there's so much room inside these things that we can write any number of applications. Um, we can do better than what we are um, if we target our R&D efforts and target our innovation to try and get us back to something that's more effective, more efficient, and more affordable uh, going forward. We can actually grow our military essentially in, in similar budget environments of where we are right now. We don't necessarily need a massive dump if we effectively partner with industry and look for new innovative things. And I think that TX has given us some great insights into that. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you both, Andrew and Jerry. Uh, excellent. Uh, TX, did you want to respond to anything or do you want to get, go ahead? Points. Sure. Uh, first off, while I tease DOD a lot, I've got a lot of friends that work there. You put a lot of brilliant people in a building and give them a system that is absolutely designed to grind them down. Um, it's, the Pentagon is not neutral. It's actively hostile to <laughs> progress and thought because it's a 1960s system, like you said, and we, it's going to take tremendous political energy to change it. I don't know that we can. Uh, third offset, and I think the SCO program and the drone work that they're doing is brilliant and really thoughtful and doomed against the programs of record. I mean, one thing we've seen is the program of record rises up and kills you. So that's the other thing we've got to work on. I absolutely agree we won't print complexity of that level. But then the question is, do you need complexity of that level? If I have a simple missile that travels 2,000 miles and delivers a couple hundred pounds of an improved explosive, do I have the same impact? So the key question is, this is a 20-year period of transition, if we're lucky. So how do we start shifting our investment? Because the Ford program is proudly briefed as we'll have carriers sailing in 2099. Really? Is that a good idea? <laughs> um, bombers, that if we build them, you know, the idea we'll do it cheaply is a little absurd to me, given the KC-46 fiasco. 20-year-old airframe, 70-year-old technology, mash them together, and you're $1.5 billion over on a $4 billion program. So quick is not going to happen. It's just because of the way the system's designed. It can't. So I think that's we've got to make this decision. We've got some great uh, stuff that's adaptable, and we can use it, but at what point do we shut that pipeline off and start investing in the future, knowing that we will consume these airplanes and these ships over the next 10 to 20 years, and there will not be an industrial base to rebuild them, because once you shut them down, you're done. So I think that's a very valid concern. All right, thank you. So we do have time for questions. It's about half an hour. A uh, couple of rules here. Uh, please wait for the microphone. That's chiefly for the benefit, uh, not just the people here in this room, but also those people watching online. So. Please wait for the microphone. Uh, identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. And uh, one more thing, uh, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute. That means uh, please phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, please. Uh, one of the gentlemen down here in the front. Uh, go ahead, sir. 
Well, I don't know if you've gamed it. Uh, I'm John Morton. I'm with Griffin Technologies, and I support the uh, Aegis program, so that's sort of an identifier. But Jerry, I, I think you've answered your own questions on um, your response to Tom. Um, you used the, the phrase, um, the Department of, or, or destruction is the objective of the Department of Defense. And I would offer that uh, I think uh, in this period that you're talking about, uh, if we're really breaking the paradigm, it should be not the Department of Destruction, but the Department of Disruption. Because the technologies that you all have been talking about, and you kind of keyed on this, uh, when you mentioned uh, just towards the end of your presentation, you said uh, non-kinetic. Well, in the Aegis program and uh, the way the CNO, the former CNO, was talking about it, it was uh, disrupting the kill chains. So I think in, instead of uh, technologies being perceived as defensive, uh, the dirty little secret is that if we accept the EW aspects and the cyber, they can be used perhaps very responsibly to, to deal with these kind of threats without being concerned with the manufacturing issues and so forth. If I may say, I'm off the reservation on Aegis because I think the difficulty there is we haven't really addressed the inventory problem. In other words, you know, you're going to run out of magazines, you know, missiles in the magazines, uh, first or second salvo, and whether you're doing an off, uh, you know, offshore balancing or whether you're coming in close in the A2AD environment, uh, eventually you're going to, you know, run out of bullets, so to speak. Anyway, that's. I'm sorry, I didn't Do you have make a question, a question. Or, or just no. No, I'd like. Okay. I, I'm. I'm sorry, I, I. went against it, but I'd be very interested. First in, one. See, he said. He yeah. set the tone for us. But no, I think what's more interesting is not what I said. The the reaction to what I said from the three panelists. Right. So we, we already we have a Department of Defense, what used to be called the Department of War, and, and now we also have a Department of Homeland Security. Are we going to add a third department? Uh, Department of Disruption, or uh, is that? No, DOD uh, stand for Department of Disruption. So, I mean, you, it's, it's interesting you use the uh, coming from the Aegis program, um, and, I, and you specifically highlight the, the magazine aspect of this. And this was a point that I was going to make, but I, I noticed that the light had switched to yellow, so I was trying to close up there. Um, the fact is, is that not all is lost. Uh, you know, uh, TX paints a, a, a sort of a dismal thing that if we fail to adapt, that we could start seeing these swarms being directed against us and that our few and exquisite, you know, could essentially, you know, empty its magazine in, in fairly quick order. Specifically, when you start looking at Ticonderoga with 122 cells and with Burks at 96 cells, you can, you know, in a, in a ballistic missile environment, you could be, you know, you could be Winchester within about four and a half minutes, uh, depending on how many salvos they throw. However, you know, New technology, some of the things mentioned in third offset, the idea of electromagnetic railgun, which essentially uh, you know, lowers the size of the shell, doesn't have the powder magazine, comes it. So you can increase your magazine size nearly anywhere from you know, 20 to 100 fold using that same space, much as the same way substituting fuel oil for coal you know, in the same amount of space gave you more density. You can increase the density of your magazine size. Uh, and if, if you look at something like Zoomwald or, or even one of the advantages of Ford, which one of the few advantages, um, is uh, that she has tremendous excess power supply, and so directed energy, you could have a limitly, you know, an unlimited magazine if you're starting to look at DE. Now there's environmental concerns that come in. 
But the idea of leaning forward enough on this to be on the leading edge and begin anticipating uh, where these things are going and making the investments so that you are you do continue to be disruptive. Un unfortunately, historically, great powers are not. Historically, great powers invest in sunk cost architecture. They sit on it. They don't innovate. And TX's point there about the idea that we, you know, aircraft carriers came in as a concept in 1912. We are betting that they're going to last 180 years. The spear didn't last 180 years. Um, so, you know, we need to have things that continue to evolve. And quite frankly, we need to be able to disrupt ourselves, clear the table, and, and move ahead. So that, that, that would be my, my reply. All right. Uh, question over here, sir. And then uh, you're next, sir. Thank you. A, a great presentation to, to kick this thing off. Um, following on your idea of, um, of, what, of the problems that uh, DOD faces, wouldn't it make sense to have a uh, think tank perhaps outside of DOD, a, uh, a nonprofit that would essentially just red team all the large DOD programs and come up with solutions for destroying them? Um, wouldn't that just kind of make a lot of sense? <laughs> I didn't plant that question. Yeah, we, we actually had one of those. It was called... The red team. The red team. And um, what happened is I was actually working for them, and they kept critiquing the products of a certain unnamed corporation because I don't want great liability <laughs> problems for Cato. Uh, mm. And so what the corporation's solution was to buy them. And then all of a sudden, those people who critiqued their products no longer were hired. And suddenly the red team was endorsing all kinds of products that those of us who worked there before said, it's too easy to beat them. One of the interesting things is I've done the red teaming thing a number of times. Probably the most useful thing is when you go out to these test programs, sit down with the guy who's working on it and say, okay, how would you defeat it? And almost invariably they can tell you a simple way. Directed energy has tremendous potential, except that it depends upon the energy. If you're in a laser, you're in a disruptible beam. Yeah. If you're in microwave, you have the problem of Faraday cages, and you talk to the people and say, how would you disrupt? So it's part of this force counterforce spy counter spy thing that we've got to work through. But you're right, we need honest red teaming that um, is a bit of a problem just because the sheer amount of money yeah. involved. And I think that it's actually... Credit. It's in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> he, he mentions that. Go ahead. Go ahead, Andrew. Sorry. I think that actually brings up a point that... Um, well, first of all, let me say uh, this question about being able to disrupt uh, programs of record is, is a real issue. Uh, we do. We get over-invested in things in, in defense acquisition because the kinds of things that it tries to do are 20, 30-year programs. So you do need, you need stick-to-itiveness to get through. That is a characteristic of the system that is necessary, uh, but also occasionally creates rigidity that, that, uh, that bites you on the back end uh, or in the middle. Uh, but but uh, the other thing I was going to say about your point is I think it highlights the importance of the human aspect of the problem. Uh, because, you know, offense and defense have been competing with one another in military technology uh, as long as there has been wars. Uh, and uh, what the difference maker tends to be is who applies the technology better. One of the things I was thinking about in reading TX's piece is, uh, although uh, we tend to, or at least I tend to think of the United States as the natural technological uh, aggressor, if you will, the one with the higher tech solution. That has not at all been true throughout the course of U.S. history. And uh, in many wars, arguably, the U.S. had inferior technology um, and then nonetheless won. And arguably, in some cases where the U.S. had superior technology, it has lost. So 
The difference maker isn't always the technology. It's frequently the way that it's used. Uh, and so I think that's where I am somewhat encouraged by what some of the things we're hearing about third offset is because it's focusing on that human element um, that tends to be the difference maker. Uh, over there and then uh, right there. Uh, uh, over there, sir. Right there. Right there. <laughs> yeah, both of you. And then uh, you, you, sir, up there. Right, right there. Go ahead, sir. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave Barrett. I work with the uh, Department of Navy. I'm just curious, um, you know, within the Pentagon, uh, you know, obviously budgets are extremely tight. Um, getting funding for a lot of uh, additive manufacturing related projects is extremely tough. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on, you know, uh, what DOD should be investing in that industry necessarily will not or not to a, a good degree? Okay. Question? Well, I think that's a key point. First off, it's a little hard for me to think with $500 billion budget, the budget's tight, but um, it is because of the way we do business. So we've got to carefully look at the things industry won't invest in. I mean, we don't need to invest a lot in, in AI. There's some specific pieces of AI, but let's face it, the big money in AI is how do I use it for trading and how do I replace brokers and all those sorts of things. So huge amounts of money is pouring in there. We've got to look for the niches that only the Pentagon does and target our investment there and then piggyback off the civilian technology. Like I said, the, the racing, in fact, drones now have racing clubs. I didn't know if you have uh, drone racing clubs that actually race in the forest. And if you ask why, it's, well, because they're guys. So that, <laughs> that happens across the spectrum on all of these technologies. So where specifically should we invest? And that's what we've got to have is a scanning. And I think your office does, used to do that, was part of the scanning on that? Well, uh, the fo office that I led was more uh, in war, war needs. So it was, you know, the, the scanning was really done by the guys in the field. What do we need? And then, then we tried to fill it. But. Uh, right there, sir. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Chuck Woolery, uh, former with the United Nations Association Council of Organizations, but I'm a biologist and, and I, I look at uh, security threats from other perspectives as well. The trends you mentioned are nothing new. The technologies, the toys are changing, and so that, but, but the trend seems to be that, that uh, security is an illusion. And uh, there was a commission report that came out this summer by Madeleine Albright, uh, basically saying it was a commission on global security, justice and governance. And it, uh, it looks like, you know, when you talk about people, the importance of people, that it's really the systems that we have in terms of how we relate to another one, one another. It was 20 years ago in this building that Ivan Eland put out a paper about uh, the roots of terrorism and the threats we face from that. And, and that, that profoundly changed my thinking. And uh, the question is, we keep thinking that security is a function of armaments. And I want you to re respond to that. I mean, liberals think security is a function of disarmament. Obviously, not clear true either. But how do you, to, to, to eventually, how do you deal with this evolution of technology that ends with everyone dead? <laughs> well, again, um, there is no such thing as absolute security. The idea there is security, and the politicians say, I will protect you from terrorism, they're just lying to you. Uh, but if it's the lie you want to hear and it gets them elected, then it's a necessary lie, apparently. But, so it's not absolute. It's a scale. And frankly, you want to be in a country more like this, 
unless like some of the places you've been in in Afghanistan where it's a little iffy or parts of the Middle East today where it's really, really iffy. So the idea that you will somehow do away with the human ferocity that leads to violence, I think is just naive. The idea that we can somehow cure the world, I think we are about to enter a period of plenty. I mean, we work for Department of Defense, so we do the bad stuff. If you want to do the good stuff, work for somebody else. Um, but there's this 3D printing is also going to bring an era of productivity that is going to be unbelievable in terms of materials, in terms of medical advances, in terms of uh, food advances. All of these things are coming extraordinarily fast. The key question is for every good thing, there's a bad potential. So the key is that if we can spread the benefits around, then we reduce the people, the number of people that are coming after you. But you still have those people, so you still have to deal with them. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, Jerry. No, you, Andrew, oh, go ahead. Thank you, Jerry. So uh, one of the things that TX addresses in the paper, uh, maybe a little more fulsomely than he did uh, in, in the 15 minutes that he had to, to, to kind of present it that I agree with a lot, is he talks about the fact that this proliferation of high high value, I was going to say high end, but that's kind of a, you know, getting into, right. high value. Uh, yeah, yeah. High, high value military capabilities proliferating around the world is it's going to make the U.S. more reluctant to intervene in other countries' business. And you talked about it when you talked about ISIS and the, and the Kuwait example. I don't 100% agree with that example, but, uh, but I think that it is true that this proliferation of high value military uh, technology is going to make it harder and harder for a country like the U.S. or anyone who might seek to take on a role like the U.S. in the future uh, to play that role that the U.S. has played in the post-World War II era uh, of being, you know, a dominant superpower, superpower generally, or a hegemon, depending on which decade you pick. Uh, that's going to get harder and harder, and it's going to be less and less attractive to try and impose U.S. will on other countries in an environment where technology trends are as they are. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, I want to, just because one of the things you said, you know, coming from a, a biology background, um, one of the, a book that I read about 10 years ago that had a profound impact on the way that some of the questions I started to raise was a book by uh, a, a professor by the name of Gould. It's called Full House, and it dealt with, uh, the, the area that I found interesting was his basic question about why there hasn't been a 400 hitter in Major League Baseball uh, since the 1940s, um, and and what had happened because there had been over 28 um, 400 hitters in during the first 40 years of the 20th century, and then there's essentially been none. And what he talked about was the parity of competition that began to come up within baseball. That and he called it the right wall, the right wall theory of evolution. That all of a sudden, you know, at one point in time there were standouts, and for a long period of time, the United States has occupied a, a right wall leadership position in international competition between nations. But what TX is talking about is that the rest of the league is beginning to catch up with us with new technologies, new awareness, new intelligence. And so the competition is, is, is rising. And the question is, is whether as we all approach the right wall, whether we reach parity and stability or whether that is going to lead to a new outbreak of conflict. Part of my own research that deals in naval presence, the important presence actually derives out of power law theory uh, looks at that the more interactions we have become between nations allows us to demonstrate our interest and our resolve on a consistent basis. So, you know, conflict is inevitable. We're, we're human beings. Essentially, we're designed to kill uh, as part of competition between us. The question is, is how many and how often? Uh, by having small competitions on a daily basis, we keep overall uh, mortality rates low because we're able to demonstrate what our interests are nation to nation, 
on, on a daily basis. If, however, interactions drop off, which occur when you buy fewer and more exquisite platforms uh, so that you're not having day-to-day -day interaction between countries, then that actually raises the uh, ability or, or the likelihood that whatever outbreak occurs will be of a larger magnitude because you haven't been there on a consistent basis. And so I think there's, a, there's an interesting um, convergence uh, be, between certain aspects of biological theory and, and military competition in the international arena. I want to pick up one thing, Andrew, you said we, we struggle with what do we call these things, and high-end has a particular meaning, which is not what you meant. What we're really talking about here is high-impact, low-cost, right, I mean, high-value or high, but high-impact, low-cost, which is why, again, I love this uh, small, smart, many. I mean, right, that, that just sort of encapsulates so much of what, what TX is talking about. Uh, sir, right there in the back, you've been very patient. Yes, sir, go ahead. Adam Siegel, Insight to Analysis. Um, if we think about the offense-defense uh, dynamics over time, and it's been raised a bit here, but how much of the effort offset or otherwise should be in the, with all its problems, directed energy as a way, as potentially cheap, fast way to deal with mass swarms, uh, electromagnetic warfare? And if we even think about other technology development areas, I mean, chemical sniffers, what we can do, you know, it's possible to put in a cell phone stuff that will be able to detect explosives that would have cost $10 million a decade ago to do. So how much of our emphasis should be developing our own faster, smaller, cheaper as a defensive side against these new potential threats? I, I think that's really the key question. At what point do you stop investing in the legacy system? At what point do you say, enough battleships, let's shift our investment portfolio? That's one of the questions. Now. If we're going to do this, it has to be with an honest competition. Uh, one of the problems, again, with bureaucracies is you tend to think to buy things. Like when the Air Force Tactical School decided the bomber would get through, and in their experiments pre-war, they discovered, A, they often couldn't find the target, B, if they even found the area, they couldn't hit it, and C, the fighter planes kept showing up. Um, <laughs> annoying little buggers. But they ignored all that because instead of a fair competition, they had a religious, near religious belief in the bomber, and therefore any facts were simply not, not applicable. And they learned over Schweinfurt. Well, they should have learned over Schweinfurt. They learned over Schweinfurt the second time that all that was not true, and so they had to modify. So I think that's what we have to have, and the key is fair competition, fair play, uh, and that is really hard to do. I haven't worked inside the Pentagon. Uh, but I've worked, I've worked a number of the war games and seen how, depending upon how you shape the war game, you can very much shape the outcome. First guy to the blackboard wins. And so we've got to some, develop some way to do better free play exercises that allow chips fall where they may. And if it happens to gore your ox, well, that's just too bad. Uh, shouldn't have that ox. So I think that's going to be the key aspect. There's great things with directed energy. There's also counters. Anyone else? Okay, in the back. Yes, sir, in the back. Go ahead. Thanks a lot, Dr. Preble. I started to worry about my rotator cuff there for a second. Um, You're sitting way in the back. You well, always I, do well, that. I, that's true. Um, building essentially on, um, on the good doctor's remarks on page five and Mr. Hunter's uh, comments also, could you look at the um, consequences of lawfare and uh, the use of drone technology, specifically drone uh, swarms, um, sovereign immunity, hot pursuit, that sort of thing? And to, I guess, Dr. Hendricks, um, no one could ever accuse um, uh, Andy Marshall of having a, a failure of imagination for all intents and purposes. A lot of us really admire Yoda, but, but could it be said that, um, that drone warfare was something that he and his department didn't foresee? And thanks, guys. 
two questions. So the, the, the lawfare, we actually, we were talking about this a little bit in the green room, about how, is, is there a role for lawfare to deal with these semi-autonomous and fully autonomous uh, uh, drones? Well, the problem is you're trying to, lawfare can be used to screw up people who want to follow the law. But there is a papal bull, which is much more powerful than lawfare, against the, the longbow. And you know the Brits didn't pay a lot of attention. Um, there are often moral outcries against various weapon systems, and then we use them anyhow. So lawfare I see not as a way to prevent or control weapons, but as a way to jam up uh, the processes in another nation or the processes particularly in multinational organizations. This is how I think the Chinese see it uh, as, a, as a tool that way. I don't see it particularly as a way to stop the development of weapon systems because always in the back of your mind is if I don't do it, he certainly will. Yeah, I, you know, my perspective on this is that, um, you know, full autonomy is a hard thing to define from my perspective. You know, I think of the original, my joke I like to say is the original autonomous system is the rock. You know, once you let go of it, it's completely in control of what's going to happen after that. Um, so there's always that point at which the rock leaves the hand, you know, when it comes to the missile. You know, uh, you know, we we fire the missile. It may go for hours and on many thousands of miles before it does what we told it to do, completely under its own control. Uh, but there was always that point at which it was targeted and and the authorization to fire was made. So I think, uh, you know, with 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 possibly few exceptions, right? It's possible to conceive of systems that would be so fully autonomous. Maybe they printed themselves from other robots in a factory that you know. You, you would lose touch of whoever programmed them. See that movie? Yeah. I did, I did. <laughs> but, but, you know, in, in, the, in the near term, at least in the near term, I think we're, we're not quite there yet. So it's always that point at which someone gave that system the authorization to, to kill, to put it bluntly. And so I think you're really, that's the point at which where you wrestle with what that decision was. And that, that point doesn't disappear. It's still going to exist, at least in the degrees of warfare that I can foresee in the reasonably near future. Uh, Jerry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to make, make two points on that. First of all, it's a great, great two questions, and I'll, I'll try to add to both of them. Uh, first one on autonomy. Uh, you know, we've dealt with this, this situation before, and we didn't have a problem with it before. Um, you know, we designed um, beyond visual range missiles during the 1960s with the idea that it was going to be fire and forget, and we we're going to hit targets that we never laid eyes on. Uh, we never actually used those. We actually had to let, allow the Iranians to use the, 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 the Phoenix missile before we ever did. But we, we, we worked that into the situation. Same thing with Aegis system. You know, Aegis system has an automatic mode. You know, the idea in the 1970s that if the regimental backfire bomber formation came out and started launching all kinds of nasty missiles at us, that it would overwhelm the human's ability to make the decision and that essentially we could go Aegis into an automatic mode and it would begin prioritizing things. Same thing, quite frankly, with CWIS, full, you know, hold fire off. You know, CWIS, a close-in weapon system, would, would make decisions based upon its own prioritization. So our recent discussions about autonomy and our uncomfortableness with it, uh, we didn't have an uncomfortableness with it in the high point of a Cold War competition. It's, it's been there before. With regard to your question on whether Andy Marshall was able to not anticipate drones, uh, I will say that after working two years in his office as a historian and having access to the records, I was struck by the fact that on five separate occasions he correctly predicted the future. Uh, however, uh, the last two occasions you ain't seen yet. <laughs> um, because uh, we, his office doesn't talk about things until about 10 years after he's already talked about them, and the man just retired last year. 
Fair enough. Thank you. Uh, right here, uh, and then uh, one more question in the back. Go ahead, Eric, and then uh, right there. Hi, Eric. Hi, Eric Gomez from the Cato Institute. I'm wondering what this does for presence, because it's been a key point of, <coughs> excuse me, of U.S. dominance around the world for the last however many decades, and it seems like the Pentagon is starting to shift from a focus away from presence a little and more towards actual, what does this look like if we have to fight? Um, so with this disruptive technology coming to the fore, how does that change presence? Are we going to see, for example, small drone fleets at Kadena instead of F-35s or F-15s, for example? Thanks. Good question. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. Um, the beauty is that the A2AD works both ways. And the beauty, if you're talking about China, is that China has to get out of the inner seas and we don't have to go in. So there's a huge advantage to us in these weapon systems in a conflict with China that we try to contain by using offshore control and using the first island chain as a defense. We have to change how we think. You're right, we can't leave F-15s parked at Kadena. So the legacy systems we have to flush, and I know that the Japanese and Americans are working on ideas where you scatter aircraft all over Japan. They've got a lot of 5,000-foot runways. They've got fuel systems we can use, so fuel is taken care of. Japanese have one of the most sophisticated transportation networks in the world so they can move bombs if we need to. We've got to start practicing that. We've got to accept that, hey, the way we've been doing business doesn't work. Then we start experimenting with how much forward force do you have and how much do you have deploy out of theater with really honest war games. We've got to think about the possibility, suppose when a fleet tries to leave San Diego Harbor, there are smart minds waiting for the first carrier that have been left there two years before, because that's a very real possibility now. Go ahead, quickly, Andrew. But I would just say, I mean, a, a couple of thoughts of that, um, and I don't have the answers, but just thoughts. Uh, one is the question about, you know, how, where does the advantage of first strike go to in this world that we're talking about? Uh, does it become more potent because you can get your thousands of drones out before the other person can? You can destroy enough that your, you know, your advantage becomes insurmountable, uh, or is it the other way around? Is it that you're, you know, uh, you gain no advantage thereby uh, because it's too easy for the other to respond? Uh, and then the second question is, again, if, if, if multiple players around the world are empowered by this trend, uh, does, it become, does coalition warfare become even more important? Because if it's one country versus one country, that's one equation. But as soon as you introduce additional countries, uh, if they're all you know, very capable as a result of these trends, you're really taking on a lot, which is what I always think about when I think about, okay, all our bases overseas are going to be gone the day the war starts. Well, that means someone has just picked a war with about 10 different countries. Right. Maybe that's a really bad idea. This is where technology trends are heading. All right, quickly, last question, David, quickly. <clears throat> Chris, very quickly, uh, and it's actually just a very quick announcement rather than a question, but it's relevant, highly relevant to the topic of the policy forum today. It's a film called Eye in the Sky. I'm a film reviewer and a journalist, so I saw it in preview a couple of days ago. It stars uh, uh, Dame Helen Mirren, the Academy Award winner, and Alan Rickman, who just died uh, suddenly uh, several weeks ago. It's called Eye in the Sky. Uh, it's, a, it's being called by uh, The Guardian. It confronts the intricate morality of modern warfare. The Hollywood Reporter says it's a hell of a nail biter, and it is. It's a thriller about an uh, about a military situation where El Shabab in Kenya 
has got a bunch of people that are, are going to go uh, put on suicide vests and go uh, blow up uh, uh, at, a, at, a, at a civilian place. And, there's, and so, and, uh, in conclusion, um, it presents a, um, a question of when to pull the trigger because they've got a UAV hovering overhead. It's carrying a Hellfire missile, and the, the decision has to be made whether to strike when an 11-year-old girl, a civilian uh, girl is just a few feet away right. and will die. So will we be reading your review of this uh, uh, film? You will, and it opens uh, in New York and L.A. Uh, Friday, and it opens uh, in D.C. on March uh, 17th. Very good. You should, be, you should be on the payroll for, this, yeah. for the studio. Uh, you know, uh, I should be. <laughs> All right. On that, on that note, uh, I want to, again, uh, thank TX for this paper, for coming today. Thanks to Andrew and Jerry for their comments, and thanks to all of you for coming today. Uh, please join us on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Uh, it's right up the uh, spiral staircase. Our staff will show you the way, and the, there are restrooms up there, uh, as well as right here on the first floor. Thank you all very much for coming today. <clears throat>